Standard Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 189 of the Standard Issue pod scene. I'm Mickey Noonan and at the weekend I went to a gig that started at 1am. Life in the old dog yet. I am very tired. <laughs> You're so... <laughs> So rock and roll, Mickey. It was quite rock and roll. I think I felt I had to be rock and roll because the three men playing the gig, it's the Smile, which is uh, Tom York and Johnny Greenwood's new beat combo, and they are older than me and were doing three gigs in a row, and I was like, seriously, I suppose I better, you know, take my blanket and try and stay awake. Why was it so late? They probably had a disco nap, hadn't they? Well, they had a gig, at, they had one at eight o'clock, then one at 1am, and then another one at 11am on the Sunday. It was being streamed to the Americas, right, live okay. streamed. We were the live stream audience for one o'clock in the morning because the tickets for all the other gigs had been sold out, Jen. <laughs> right. Last time we went to a gig that late, we all had to go home because we had to leave early because we were tired when we went to see Daniel Kitson. Oh, yeah. at like, and it yeah. started at half past 12 and by about half past one, we were all like... I think my eyes were actually closing, weren't they? And you were, at that point, the pair of you were like, I think we need to take Jen home. (laughs) He's very much become the Ken Dodd of comedy, hasn't he, at the Edinburgh Festival? Just keeps talking. He was very funny, from what I remember, of not being asleep. So, I'm Hannah Donlevy, and I need to talk to you about purple shampoo. Tell me of its ways. So, purple shampoo, for anyone who doesn't know, which until recently was me, Mickey advised that I use, because it makes the white bits of your hair look nicer. And so I got some, and it does make the white bits of your hair look nicer, but it comes with a weird side effect, which is that purple shampoo, or my hair having been washed in purple shampoo, is the new pears in my house. And I don't know if that means anything to anyone who hasn't, won't, if you've never listened to this podcast before, I did write about it extensively in the Bush Telegram once. My cats are obsessed by pears. They are now obsessed by the purple shampoo hair. Oh, wow. And they come into my bed at night and lick my head. (laughs) If I sit down for more than about five minutes, one of them comes and just starts having a little chew at the back. The other day, I wasn't near my phone, which was really disappointing because I had both of them on both sides, both (laughs) licking my head. I don't know what's got in it. Catnip. Can I ask, Hannah, is this a brand new thing that they've started washing your hair? Because we had a cat that used to wash our hair, like, all the time regardless of what was on it. Peggy has done it once before, once, and that's it. Jonah's never done it. And do they appear to like washing your hair? Because our cat Muesli, like, she didn't seem to enjoy doing it, but she seemed to do it out of a sense of duty. Like a compulsion. (laughs) She couldn't help herself. Well, it's a really strong sense of duty if they're doing it, Jen, because... I can't imagine anybody doing anything that regularly that they don't enjoy. No, well, I always thought with her, because also our other cat, Perda, used to, if you had perfume on, she'd try and get it off you. So I think with Muesli, it was the texture, because the texture of, like, human hair is very different to the texture of cat fur. And also longer, tends to be longer hair. Exactly, so it's a bit like, you know, it sort of gets caught on the on the sandpapery tongue of a cat in a way that, yeah. like, cat fur doesn't. They've basically written a cheque they can't cash there. <laughs> Exactly. Uh, they're basically, exactly. their tongue looks like the bottom roller of the yeah. <laughs> I don't know why I thought Muesli was doing it, but with Perda, I always thought she was like trying to, she smelt chemicals and she was like, no, nah, I'm going to get get this shit off you. No. I think they like the taste of it, Jen. Mm-hmm. And the smell. Interesting. Clarky likes to wash hair occasionally as well, but particularly when it's wet. If I showered and washed my hair and he comes and sits on the down toilet seat and meows at me till I put my head in his face so that he can have a little wash of my hair. Sometimes he fights it, though, and that hurts. 
I mean, I think I probably will persist with the purple shampoo and hope that they just go off it. <laughs> or just have loads of pears strategically <laughs> placed around the house on hair. Hannah, you know. Hannah Dunleavy. You know Hannah Dunleavy. She sleeps in a bed of pears. <laughs> I'm Jen Offord and I'm worried that my daughter might be a Djokovic fan. Evidence, please. Very strong reaction to Nadal winning the Australian Open when he started getting very emotional because he is... As the BBC website put it, number one in the goat race, a between Djokovic and Federer and himself. He's got 21 Grand Slam titles now, and the others have got just 20, a mere 20. Lazy bastards. And he won it, and he started, like, um, you know, obviously celebrating and whatever, and Lyra positioned herself in front of the TV, looked at it, wagged her finger, and just went, no, no. <laughs> And then eventually started going, no, <laughs> getting quite upset about it. Sparked a very strong reaction in her that neither my mum nor she I She had asked explain. me to put some money on for her. <laughs> oh, okay. That might explain it. Later on, journalist and broadcaster Helena Merriman tells me all about Room 5, her latest, and I've got to say it's brilliant, series for Radio 4, a six-part collection of stories about lives that change in a heartbeat and the process of diagnosis and recovery. In Jenny Off the Blocks, I talk to Olympic gold medalist turned Eurosport pundit Amy Williams about the Winter Olympics and in Rated or Dated, we are hoping very much not to hurl as we watch 1992's Wayne's World. But first, has she been... It's time for the Bush Telegraph. <laughs> Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. If you'd like to know how Boris Johnson is still PM, press one. If I press one, have you got any actual answers, Hannah? Option nine. It's just me rending my clothes and screaming. <laughs> so here we are recording unconventionally on a Tuesday because we had to wait for the results of Sue Gray's report or update or interim report or whatever it is we're calling it. Which means, of course, I did get to watch nearly two hours of a veritable who's who of British politics line up to punch Boris Johnson in the balls. Mm. Win. Gray's update can be summarised thus. She's been restricted in what she can say by the Met investigation into 12 of a possible 16 suspected parties. There was a failure of leadership. Staff felt unable to speak up when they felt uneasy about rule-breaking. There was a culture of drinking unsuitable for any workplace. At 3.30, Boris addressed Parliament to issue an apology of sorts. Very much of sorts. I am so glad you've said the of sorts because I have heard the BBC keep saying, Boris, apologise to Parliament. I'm like, did he? Did he though? I don't understand how if the guy doesn't think he did anything wrong, what it is that he thinks he's apologising for. But that is a whole different question. You know the rest. Then Keir Starmer said something, you know, quite dignified and pretty statesmanly. And then, well, seven kinds of shit kicked off. (laughs) Impossible though it is to get it all in. Here are some highlights. Johnson indulged in some hardcore whataboutery by invoking Jimmy Savile. Like seriously, having my head in my hands doesn't translate well for a podcast, but this is where we are. Yep, and that's also an easily disprovable lie. So a good start. (laughs) Andrew Mitchell, former chief whip and star of Plaguegate. Do you remember that, Mick? God, that was eons ago. So much has happened. He told Boris he didn't want to be his political boyfriend anymore, (laughs) which was a bit awkward. Ian Blackford, leader of the SNP in the Commons, was removed after calling Boris Johnson a liar. Go, Blackford. 
Michael Fabricant said something, but I couldn't take it in because I was transfixed by what I can only call the dandruff wig dichotomy. <laughs> Did wigs get dandruff, Mickey? Do wigs get dandruff? I suppose to really buy into the lie that it's his real hair, perhaps... It's I did consider that. He gets it on there. I did consider yeah. that. Some people told sad stories. Eventually, somebody mentioned the drinking culture in number 10, and one oh. Labour MP went further to ask about drug taking, at which point Boris Johnson accused the Labour front bench of taking drugs themselves. <laughs> I mean, let's consider that for a second. The PM was asked if maybe he shouldn't try to ensure that people aren't doing coke in the same building his kids live in, and his response is, well, that... His response was basically, no, you are. Yeah. (laughs) Just so childish. Yeah. Anywho, talking of fully mad bastardness, Suzanne (laughs) Webb, MP for, I don't know, where are people currently cringing themselves to death? She complained that Labour was taking up valuable time with this, despite the fact, as Hoyle pointed out, Johnson had asked to make a statement. And if you think that is the stupidest contribution to the debate, consider what to make of the two Tory MPs who chose to later stand up and basically say variations on a theme. There was a lot of talk about Putin, some shouting about Brexit, some about the quality of ice cream in Lancashire. And someone pulled the string on the back of Bill Cash and he said one of his six pre-programmed statements. (laughs) I used to have a bear like that. (laughs) Special (laughs) mention goes to a trio of Labour women, including Jess Phillips, who tried the Paxman approach of asking the same simple yes-no question again and again. But the real star of the show was former PM, Theresa, best served cold, May, whose Mm. rather wonderful takedown of the man who succeeded her concluded with this in a chef's kiss delivery that I can only hope to replicate here. What the Grey Report does show is that Number 10 was not observing the regulations they had imposed on members of the public. So either he had not read the rules, he did not understand them, or he did not think the rules applied to Number 10. Which was it? <laughs> I mean, I'm loath to, to clap teabag, but good honour. And through it all, Johnson, who I have to say doesn't appear to have read the same report as the rest of us, <laughs> maintained that he was sorry while laughing. Maintained he understood the anger of the country while showing he didn't even have a handle on how angry Parliament is. And he told us to wait. I'm not sure he fully understands that we're actually prepared to. Do you think waiting will lead to anything like what the majority of people, certainly people I know, and I realise that I'm in a fairly left-wing bubble, would like to happen? The thing about this that makes it a more potentially dangerous scandal to him is it's not about something like cutting universal credit where it only affects people that are on universal credit. You can be as hardcore Tory as you like, but if you said goodbye to your mum through the window of a nursing home, I think it's going to have a profound effect on you that could override any loyalty you have to someone like Boris Johnson. It's baffling to see how many Tory members of Parliament are still lining up to defend him, though. And I loathe them as much as I loathe Johnson, because actually... 
I think it's clear from his character that he hasn't got any sort of respect for the country that means he's going to resign. So it's up to them to oust him. And the fact that they're just so weak and cowardly that they're not going to do it. I actually hate them as much. I mean, Nadine Dorries turned up on a couple of news She's channels last night. Shit. I mean, the fact that she was omnipresent last night is a, is a useful reminder of how few other people there are prepared to go and do what she did, which is basically say he did nothing wrong. You know, what's a party? Let's all move on, etc., etc. But she looks a bit wide eyed and mad. I have to say, I don't. She didn't have a good argument. If there is a good argument for Boris Johnson being above the rules, then I'm prepared to listen to it. But I haven't heard it yet. Because it doesn't exist. It's all very 1984. It feels like what she was saying while she was doing the rounds isn't he's telling the truth. It was if he says it, then it is the truth, which is very different. Mm. Yeah. So as a nation has waited impatiently for Sue Gray's report, many are waiting with a lump in their throat and leaden feeling in their stomach for a spring marked by tax hikes and soaring prices. You may remember that I spoke to Trussell Trust CEO Emma Revy before Christmas about how the Trust was looking to give out 7,000 emergency food parcels a day in December. For months, inflation has spiralled. The cost of a weekly food shop is up. Utility bills are rocketing. Something we don't have to wait for is a cost of living crisis. A huge swathe of the country is barely surviving it. Eat or heat is a genuine question in too many UK households. So, you know, it's good to know that with everything else going on in Parliament, at least they're getting this right, eh? Mm -hmm. So in December, the Consumer Price Index, the CPI, measure for inflation rose to 5.4%, a near three-decade high. And yet, worrying as that is, it actually fails to tell the full story of inflation and grossly underestimates the true cost of living crisis as it happens to people with the least. The managing director of Iceland, that is the the food seller, not the country, (laughs) Richard Walker, stated that his stores are losing customers to food banks and to hunger. Not Tesco, not Aldi, but charity and starvation. Walker went on to pledge to keep Iceland's £1 lines at the flat rate of £1 until the end of the year, which, as other supermarkets stealthily remove smart price, basics and value range products, is something. What is clear is that the CPI index, which, in case you don't know, charts 700 pre-specified goods, including a leg of lamb, bedroom furniture, a television and champagne, isn't fit for universal purpose. Cue Jack Monroe. We've praised Jack before and we'll no doubt praise Jack again. No stranger to living on the edge of the knife, Jack is working with economists, charities and analysts to compile her own price index of basic food prices to be known as the Vimes Boot Index after Terry Pratchett's brilliant distillation of socio-economic unfairness in Disworld novel Men at Arms. And huge credit to Jack. It is already starting to make a difference. Last week, the Office for National Statistics admitted that, quote, one inflation rate doesn't fit all. In response, Jack tweeted, Delighted to be able to tell you that the ONS have just announced that they are going to be changing the way they collect and report on the cost of food prices and inflation to take into consideration a wider range of income levels and household circumstances. It's great news. I'm not even going to bother saying it should be Westminster getting this shit done because, well, as Hannah's just (laughs) pointed out, just look at them. If you don't already follow Jack, though, check out at Bootstrap Cook on Twitter and the hashtag Vimes Boots Index. Yeah, good for her. Definitely. Well, that kind of was a bit of good news, Mick. I know. Based on very terrible news, though. Well, here's some more good news. Yes. And it's not just one bit of good news. 
It's two bits of good news. What is this? What? The late 90s. Oh, stop it with your teasing. <laughs> Let's start with the news that a bill making British Sign Language a legally recognised language has received government backing. It was put forward by Labour MP Rosie Cooper, who herself has deaf parents, as a private member's bill, which usually die on the vine, to be honest. But this one Mm. seems like it might go somewhere and is now moving on to the committee stage. According to figures from the British Deaf Association, up to a quarter of a million people use some British Sign Language on a daily basis. But despite this, it is not recognised as an official language in England, Wales and Northern Ireland. Well done, Scotland, where it already is. Rose Ailing Ellis, the actor who won Strictly back in December and is deaf herself, has also been campaigning for the change. She welcomed the news, pointing out that it will help deaf people by ensuring translators will be provided in situations like visiting a doctor, which means that people will no longer have to take a family member who they may not wish to be privy to that information to act as a translator. If the bill does pass, the government would be required to follow new guidance on how the use of BSL can be put in place across services. It also calls for a British Sign Language Council to be formed to promote and advise on the use of BSL. Good news indeed. Absolutely. And I mean, maybe I shouldn't be, but astonishing that it isn't already recognised as an official language. Yeah. But wait, here's some more good news. Yes, Hannah. Professional female footballers in England will finally be entitled to maternity and long-term sickness cover. The Football Association and Professional Footballers Association, that's the FA, I don't know why I said it in long long terms (laughs) like that, has agreed the change for players at 24 clubs in the Women's Super League and Women's Championship, although exact details have yet to be unveiled. Sunderland Central MP Julie Elliott, who convened a debate in Parliament on women's experiences of playing football in England, described the news as a great step forward. It is. Yeah, it is. Well done, all that good news. And thank you, Hannah, for bringing a little light into our lives. More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where sexism rears its ugly head in the happiest place on earth. My house? (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, not even Disneyland. The magical kingdom itself is safe from misogynistic bullshit. So let's look at a woman who has always been a thoroughly modern mouse. Minnie. Think of Minnie Mouse and you'll probably have a mental image of looks very like Mickey Mouse, but has a bow in her hair and a penchant for polka dots. And I wouldn't fight you. But throughout the decades since her inception in 1928, Minnie has always been, if not a trendsetter, a mouse with her eyes on what's fashionable, and in fact was originally conceived as a flapper girl. Moreover, in her early appearances, she could be seen wearing a combination of blue, black or green, when not depicted in black and white on the big and small screens, obviously. And yet... None of this is a salve for those saw that Minnie's signature red polka dot frock is to be ditched. Basically, I'm going to say things like I'm in the sun now. It's to be ditched for a progressive blue polka dot pantsuit. That's a trouser suit to us limeys designed by Stella McCartney. A girl mouse in trousers? The world's gone woke mad. I tell you, woke mad, said a whole lot of people in the comments. 
I wanted Minnie to wear her very first pantsuit at Disneyland Paris, so I've designed one of my iconic costumes, a blue tuxedo, using responsibly sourced fabrics, McCartney said in a statement. I did like that the Daily Mail, because I did actually have to read an article in the Daily Mail for this, when they mentioned Stella McCartney, did put, who is also the daughter of Paul McCartney. Can't mention a woman without giving her a relationship to some no. sort of guy. Right-wing rent-a-gob Candace Owens was one of the first on the scene, slash Fox News, decrying Minnie's new duds as an attempt to destroy fabrics of our society. Uh, well, which fabrics? Blue, blue polka dot ones? Very specific fabric. And as a distraction from the price of bacon. No, I don't know that Candace is okay. <laughs> Minnie's new look, which will, it has to be said, only be worn on site at Disneyland Paris by the character during March, has also been described as Slutterasia, woke pandering run amok, and a covert Hillary homage. In honesty, Minnie looks comfy, and if you could see my outfit of sloppy jumper and comfy tracksuit bottoms, you'd know that Mickey is all for that. The Minnie Mouse palaver follows hot on the heels of green girl M&M Fury. Actually, hot on the no longer wearing heels is more accurate because last week it was announced M&M's, the sweets, are being redesigned for a, quote, more dynamic, progressive world with a focus on, quote, female empowerment and inclusivity. To which end, the green female M&M, you know, the sexy one, had her heeled go-go boots replaced with a pair of white trainers, because it's not 1965 anymore. Mars said the sneakers will reflect her, quote, effortless confidence. Oh, smash his face into this. (laughs) And we'll see the green M&M, quote, better represented in order to, quote, reflect confidence and empowerment as a strong female and allow her to be, quote, known for much more than her boots. I mean, sure, sure. If it all sounds like too much nonsense to be bothered about, then feel free to explain it to those outraged at the changes. The changes to a sweet fictional character invented purely for advertising purposes. Me? Well, I'd still eat her, because surely that's still the end game, right? Hmm. Seriously, let clothes be clothes, let toys be toys, let fictional female rodents wear whatever the fuck they like, and pass me the Maltesers. Jesus. <laughs> I mean, I, I, you're right. I don't understand why people get annoyed about it. But also, I mean, just for fuck's sake, effortless confidence <laughs> and empowerment as a strong female sweet. I mean, fuck me. <laughs> what a load of bollocks. It's almost like the, surely the end point of this is that we're going to be so attached to these characters that sales will drop because no one's going to want to be some sort of crazy cannibal and eat them. I mean, I have always wondered that weird advert where someone comes in and their wife's in bed with an M&M. Yeah. Why? What do you do with yours, Hannah? (laughs) Well, luckily they're putting that weirdness behind... Oh, no. Absolutely ramping it up. Yeah. Did you see um, Dinklage was having a pop-up Disney for these... Remaking Snow White and Seven Dwarfs Dwarfs as well. I mean, it is a title that uh, implies there's going to be problems. I mean, I love him, so whatever he says about... You know, dwarfism, I'm prepared to say he's absolutely 100% correct. I would go further and say, why are they remaking a film that basically says that women can grow up to be princesses or housewives? I, Yeah. I think there's been a drop in the number of young girls attempting to get birds involved with the cleaning. And they're just trying to bring that back. You know, mm. singing it. Was it singing it 
housework. Is that how you described it when we did it in Dunleavy Does Disney? Yeah, I think so. Anyway, I took us off topic there. It's all part and parcel of the same topic, I think, though, Hannah. I mean, I, I'm dressed like I'm about to go out on the deadliest couch today, so what the fuck do I know? <laughs> Hello, I am joined on the Zoom by award-winning journalist, author and documentary maker Helena Merriman, whose book and Radio 4 series Tunnel 29 told the extraordinary true story of a man who dug a tunnel under the feet of Berlin Wall border guards to help friends, family and strangers escape and who you can currently hear on Radio 4 and BBC Sounds with her excellent series, Room 5. Helena, hello. Hello. Thank you for having me. Oh, thanks for coming on. I think when we look around us, particularly if you're someone who spends any time on like Twitter or, you know, reading or watching the news, it can seem like humans are rubbish, self-serving skin sacks. But you've got a real <laughs> nose for sniffing out the remarkable in everyday people. I mean, you've got to look for it, don't you? <laughs> it's a real search. You don't always find it, but you have to search to keep believing. I just wanted to say thank you. That's all right. <laughs> so let's start with Tunnel 29, which smashed it as a podcast in 2019, was published as a book last year, 2021, and the TV rights have been snatched up by Sister Productions and we'll have Johan Renk, who directed Chernobyl, in the director's chair. I mean, congratulations. Thank you. And yeah, it's being written by Georgia Pritchett. Oh, we've had her on the show. We love her. Oh, she's amazing. Isn't she? She's absolutely brilliant. And her book is just phenomenal. My Mess is a Bit of a Life. I'm sure you discuss it in length. I love it. So yeah, it's a dream team. And the writing has begun. And it's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. So hopefully we won't have to wait too long before it's on a screen. That's very exciting. Are you in the writer's room then? No. I mean, it's not like they were clamouring to have me. So it wasn't like I was like, oh, no, you know, I can't do it. <laughs> I kind of didn't want to be that annoying writer who, who makes something and then says, or I can do everything else. I can write the film and the TV series and make the T-shirt. And, and I thought a podcast series in a book is enough. And I really wanted to see what someone else would do with it. Uh-huh. Did you know when you were writing, producing and recording Tunnel 29 that it was going to be a big one? No, and I, I think partly because I was making it mostly on my own. So I produce and, and research my own stuff. And so I always have a lot of self-doubt towards the end of any project I'm working on where I suddenly think, what am I doing? Why <laughs> did I think anyone would be interested in this? Have I just kind of farted around for the last year and made something that's just going to bomb? And, I, and I'm really plagued with that moment on you know, as the days lead up to it going out. And so with Tunnel 29, the day when it went out, I thought, oh, it's probably just going to bomb. No one's going to listen. And then I remember watching the download numbers because I worked in radio for a long time where you never quite know how many people mm-hmm. are listening and you've got the rage jar figures, but it's not an exact science. And then podcasts come along and suddenly you can see how many people are listening, which is either a good thing or a slightly terrifying thing. (laughs) And then with this, the numbers just sort of shot up and really quickly. So I think we had a million downloads within a few weeks. And I think it was partly because, as you were saying, there is just so much shit news around in the world and we're surrounded by it all the time. And I think this story about this plucky group of teenagers who do the impossible and dig this tunnel under the Berlin Wall, I think that caught people's imagination. I also love that when I was doing my research, I discovered that actually Tunnel 29 and this remarkable group of humans who wanted to help each other came from you deciding to write about one of the worst humans on the planet, right? 
Mm, exactly. I mean, I was, yeah, <laughs> I would agree with that assessment, Donald Trump. So, I was, yeah, I was making a program all about the war between Mexico and the US. You know, this is a few years ago now, which she was talking a lot about. And I, as I was doing the research for that program, I came across this extraordinary statistic that there are uh, 70 countries now have some kind of wall or barrier. So that's a third of the world. And so people describe the age that we're living in now as an age of walls. And I got obsessed with escape stories. I started just reading about all sorts of escapes, whether it was, you know, modern day escapes now in the Middle East, where you have lots of tunnels or, and then I, and then I found myself looking at this memorial website about the Berlin Wall. And I came across a couple of lines about this guy, Joachim Rudolph, who had helped dig a tunnel under the Berlin Wall. And then the, the bit of it that really interested me as a journalist was that the whole thing had been filmed by this American TV network. So it was sort of about the beginning of reality TV as well. Oh, wow, that is a far cry from Celebrity Big Brother 84. <laughs> but maybe maybe the beginnings of it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how to feel. You said there that you were really into escape stories. And, and Tunnel 29 was described by the Times as having a story arc through betrayal and disaster to triumph that is perfect. And I actually think the episodes of Room 5 have the same arc. Mm. Can you tell us what Room 5 is about, please? Yeah, and that's... Yeah, it's a really good point. I think there are some real similarities. So Room 5, it's a series all about what happens when our minds and our bodies behave in ways we don't understand. So it's exploring all sorts of conditions. Some of them are rare. Some of them are ones that quite a few of us might have, but we don't always talk about. And it was sparked by my own diagnosis. I was diagnosed with a degenerative hearing condition a few years ago, and it was one of those moments where everything slightly changes really Mm -hmm. and you come out of a doctor's surgery feeling slightly different to the person who went in the room where I was diagnosed was room five and I still remember coming out and sitting on the bus home feeling a bit sorry for myself (laughs) and looking around at the other people on the bus realizing that probably most of them were carrying around something too some kind of either it might be a mental health problem or perhaps physical problem or a combination of the two as most of the time it is it really struck me how we're often not good at talking about those things like we might summarize something with a friend in a pub and often we kind of throw in a funny line to make them feel like we're not going to get all heavy on them and we rarely have a chance to kind of go into all the visceral messy details of everything from an operation to the sound of an operating theater to the very funny things that can sometimes happen on these journeys like one of the men that I interviewed for this program who has an extraordinary time of it with his penis and he was incredibly open with me about some of the things he went through and some of the very inconvenient post-operation erections that you often get as a man and these things that we don't always talk about. Yeah he's just really matter of fact about his bellend seeping some sort of horrible viscous liquid at Peppa Pig World. Exactly on the on the teacup ride I think it all began. I wondered why you think it is important to share these stories but you've kind of covered that with saying that we don't talk about them and I guess we don't talk about them because they're frightening because it could happen to any of us right and actually listening to room five I think it often becomes room 101 these really do feel like horror stories before the hope and the grit kick in I think for anyone listening who has had a diagnosis or had a moment where their body has suddenly done something that they they can't work out and they have a whole strange set of symptoms I think people will know that you can end up in a dark place quite quickly whether that's because you've googled something and you're sure you've got cancer or whether that's because you go through a whole set of appointments and you don't get answers Mm. for months and months and months 
And we have both an anatomical squeamishness and an emotional squeamishness in this country where we want to spare people the details of an operation. So, you know, we don't want to get into the into the details of what might have happened to us on an operating bed. But also, I think sometimes we find it hard to share the very low and the very dark moments. I certainly did. I went to a few dark places when I was diagnosed with my hearing condition. And there were times when I thought I might go deaf. And as a as someone who has been obsessed with sound and music from a very young age and who works in radio and podcasts, that was really frightening. And I, I hardly told anyone about that because I just didn't want to be a downer. And I've, yeah. I've since learned through beginning to share some of this stuff and through making Room 5 and being overwhelmed by the response that when you share those low moments, instead of people feeling like you're bringing them down, a lot of the time people feel comforted because they realize they're not they're not alone and there's some reassurance in knowing that other people have been there too and often they found a way out definitely i'll get back to this but humans are both fragile and remarkable and it's good to focus on both of those sides of us absolutely and also these stories aren't just changing one life and i'm not just talking about the impact that these kind of diagnoses and illnesses would have on the individuals nearest and dearest but what a lot of your interviewees have been through has gone on to exact medical advancement or a change in Mm. medical thinking right yeah, so there's one guy I speak to called Joel. He's American, um, the son of Nicaraguan immigrants, which is why it's pronounced Joel. And he grew up with this extraordinary sensation of feeling in his body what he could see happening to other people. Wow. So if he watched someone who was, I don't know, like having um, having a fit on the floor and having heart palpitations, he would feel as though they were happening to him. And he grew up with that all his life and just thought, perhaps he was particularly sensitive. And he is then eventually diagnosed with a condition that affects around one to 2% of the population. So it's more common than we might think mm-hmm. called mirror touch synesthesia, which was only discovered in the last decade. And it's changing the way doctors think about the way that all of us interact with other people. And it's changed and advanced our understanding of empathy. So one of the things that he's learned is that when we're in conversations with other people, when someone's telling us about something that's happened to them, we will put ourselves in their shoes, put ourselves in their skin for a moment. But what people like Joel really struggle with is coming back to their own body mm-hmm. and their own world and their own experiences. So through Joel's experience, they're, they're trying to train up nurses and doctors and psychotherapists to better be able to sort of protect themselves as well as being empathetic. And I found that really fascinating because I'm sure a lot of people listening will probably identify with that feeling of almost empathy burnout. Absolutely. If, you, if you're if you an empath, you, you read a lot, a lot about it, of how exhausting that can be. But I mean, mm. he has taken it to another level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he said there are good points too. I mean, when he has sex with people, he says it is absolutely mind-blowing. <laughs> good <laughs> like <a> experience. <laughs> you know, you've got, to, you've got to cling on to these moments. It's like, as you were saying, it's the ride of life. And, you, you know, you can sink low in moments and then other moments you fly high because of those things that make your body or your mind a bit different. Has making the series really brought home to you how little we actually know about the way our bodies and minds work, even though we've had huge scientific and medical advancements over the past centuries? Yeah. And I think what's been fascinating is with so in every program, I tell the story of one person and one person's search for diagnosis from symptoms through to, to diagnosis and, and recovery. 
And as well as interviewing them, I interview the doctor who either diagnosed or treated them because I'm kind of fascinated in those relationships between a, a doctor and a patient or a, a psychologist and, and their client. One of the things that has really interested me is how in each of those conditions, people's presentation of it might differ in every case, their recovery might be different. And I think because medicine is a science, I think we often think that the statistics should be exact and the way people should recover might be the same as everyone else. But there is so much variation. And and some of that is for social and political and structural reasons. Mm -hmm. So in one episode, I interview this brilliant makeup artist. She's called Andrea. She lives in Liverpool. She's very funny, got very dry sense of humour. And she was telling me all about growing up with constant chronic pain in her stomach around the time of her period. And it went on for years and years and years. And she was eventually diagnosed. I don't know if I should give, them, give it away what she was diagnosed with, but maybe it's all right to give away a few. She was eventually diagnosed with endometriosis. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure many listeners will know what that, yep. what that is, but it's, it's a, a condition which means you often feel a lot of pain around the time of your period where the lining of your womb ends up in different places. And what I discovered through the interview with her and, and a specialist was that the difference in the way that female and male conditions are treated is vast. I mean, all over the world, it's a big problem and it's called the gender health gap. But it's the widest of the gender health gaps are in this country, in Britain. So Britain has the widest gender health gap in the G20 group of countries. Well done us. We're world beating, Helena. We're world beating. I know, world beating at something. <laughs> so here's an example of this. So five times more research money is spent on erectile dysfunction, and that affects only 20% of men, than premenstrual syndrome, which affects 90% of women. So that one statistic just gives you an idea of just what the difference is. Yeah, we have covered this quite extensively on the podcast and it never fails to make me furious. So yeah, I'm going yeah. to do the rest of this quite angry. You know what, there is, there, right now, and this um, this is something that every, actually everyone can take part in. So the government has put out a report this year and you might have covered this already, but they've acknowledged this huge gender health gap mm-hmm. and this huge problem. And they've just launched a survey and they're asking every woman over 16 in this country to fill out the survey and talk about any health problems they've had or frustrations they've had with the with the NHS. And they said they're going to take all the answers in and use them to help develop a new health strategy that better serves women. I mean, I've got to say, I remain sceptical, but that doesn't mean that I haven't already filled in the survey because I have and absolutely heartily recommend that people do. Mm, got to try. <laughs> I mentioned before that some of them sound like horror stories. and like They, they all have, I'm going to put in inverted commas, a happy ending, like, which is good. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, there is There is triumph over these illnesses at the end. But one in particular, I think, is a horror story, and that is Bex, and she is the, mm. the first episode. Mm. And the scary thing is, it feels like it ties into a tale as old of time of women's health issues being dismissed as hysteria and she Mm. becomes and I'm holding my finger and thumb very close together listeners this close to being sectioned when it isn't Mm. a mental illness at all Mm. so she she starts noticing problems when she's at university she's in a second year at university and she goes into a seminar and suddenly she's feeling very very anxious and confused and Uh, feeling like she's just not all there. And then over the next few weeks, she has these seizures and she starts to have little hallucinations. You know, all of those things are quite a big deal. Like Mm. if I were to just suddenly lie on the floor having a fit, I would be really terrified by that. But she goes to the hospital and they say, oh, it's just uh, probably a bit of anxiety. 
And so she goes home, the seizures carry on, the hallucinations carry on. She ends up in hospital. And by this point, she's beginning to babble. She's lost the power of speech. She's often running around the ward, convinced that there are people chasing her, trying to kill her. And exactly, as you say, she's very close to being sectioned. Um, many women with a condition that she she actually has by this point do end up sectioned. But a neurologist happens to be wandering through the ward and he sees her holding this fluffy penguin. And something about the way that Bex is sitting with this penguin makes him think, hmm, this isn't, I don't think this is psychosis. Yeah. And they run some tests and they, over the next period of a few weeks, they eventually diagnose her with a condition that again was only discovered relatively recently called autoimmune uh, NMDR antibody encephalitis. Real mouthful. Yeah. Hope I said that right. (laughs) But it's a condition that affects women much more than men. You know, you think over, you know, it's not like this condition has suddenly only turned up. It's, It's been in existence for a long time. And you just think of the number of women who over the decades will have been sectioned with this. And, you know, many of them have died because it's not their, it's not that their mind uh, is suddenly playing up, it's their body. They need medical interventions. They need steroids to help reduce inflammation and to get rid of the harmful antibodies. And you asked the question, are there women in the world today who will have been sectioned when actually they have this? And the answer is yes. And it's just heartbreaking. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there are, there's no doubt that there are women sitting in psychiatric wards right now with this condition and that's that's terrifying but on the other hand this is something that people are now getting much greater awareness of and you know it was a big deal for Bex to talk about this it was the first time she'd ever talked publicly about this and actually pretty much everyone I've interviewed I think that's true most of them have never spoken about these things before and they, they were really sort of cathartic conversations and I was very surprised and touched and impressed by how open and honest they felt able to be and I have no doubt that that will help so many other people going through something similar absolutely I fully agree with you as I said before humans are both fragile and remarkable and it is really moving listening to room five and I think the the immersive soundscapes that you have in there really help as well it's glorious and obviously sound is very important to you for loads of reasons but hearing people finding the depths of courage and determination that they absolutely did not think they had is incredible have the stories you've covered made you more optimistic and hopeful as a human oh yeah yeah I mean I think in so many fronts number one because I just get to speak to doctors and I love speaking to doctors I uh, and these are doctors not only in who are working in hospitals but psychologists or um, occupational therapists and just talking to them about the quiet work that they do in corners of hospitals all over the country is is I find it very inspiring and it it fulfills that little uh, slightly disturbing interest I have in bodies and, <laughs> and veins and skin and scars and operations. So that's kind of interesting hearing about all that side of things too. The thing that, that I've learned the most from making this series is how you can end up being diagnosed with something and the treatment that you get or the recovery that you go on changes you slightly as a person. Mm-hmm. And often that that change that happens to people they often sort of say at the end of it I wouldn't really have it any other way that's me now with this broken part of me that's who I am and people find the most extraordinary ways of adapting and often that means they have to let go of parts of themselves that they thought were were a really key part of themselves like with John you know he is this man who's very in control of his life and by the end he has to accept that he has to give some of that up Mm -hmm. and I think it's a part of 
of a journey of a medical journey that we don't always think about so much the psychological part and how those how those experiences change us so what's next is there going to be another series of room five perhaps oh (laughs) i've had a lot of emails from people with their own with their own experiences and their own diagnoses so i it's limitless. There's so be like many. A GP now, people will just be coming up and going, Helena, is this weird enough to go on the programme? I know. It'll be like my GP sister's phone, which is just full of strange photographs because people are forever sending her <laughs> photos of strange warts or skin conditions or spots. And uh, yeah, it's, it, it, might, it might become that. But also it's, it's been genuinely revelatory, some of the emails I've had with names and conditions that I've never heard of before. So that's just been, yeah, completely fascinating. What is definitely next then, if you can't tell us whether there'll be another series of Room 5? Well, I, it, there may well be, so let's leave it at that. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and where can people keep up with what you're up to, please? So I'm on social, so on Twitter and Instagram at Helena Merriman. If people want to hear some of the episodes, they're going out on Radio 4 every Tuesday at 9, and then also on BBC Sounds, so they'll be appearing there every week absolute pro you did my admin at the end for me thanks very much (laughs) (laughs) i'm so used to trying to promote the series you play ball like a girl go on do one kid jenny off the blocks I am joined by olympic gold medalist and new eurosport expert amy williams hello amy how are you Hello, good morning. I'm good, thank you. Thank you very much for joining us. Obviously, everyone will know you as the skeleton racer who, in 2010, you were the first British athlete to win an individual title at the Olympic Winter Games in 30 years. That is huge. But I just wanted to ask you, first of all, because you weren't always a skeleton racer, were you? You were a runner before that. Yeah, so, I mean, a lot of skeleton athletes and bobsleigh athletes are... generally come from the kind of power speed sports so for me yes it was athletics and running loads of athletes transition across from one sport into the next winter sports are not as big in the uk as they are in some other european countries just because of the climate i assume so how did you get into it initially traditionally we're not the kind of biggest winter sport nation but like you said it's just because of environment, snow, you know, mountains, alpine, etc. But skeleton, we have done incredibly well and have medaled since 2002, um, Winter Olympics, Salt, Salt Lake City. And so for me, it's because back in 2002, they built a special start track, push track at the University of Bath. And that was for the skeleton and bobsleigh athletes to be able to practice that sprint start on a fake kind of little track. Um, it's like train tracks and another sled slots on just to get that power, speed, explosiveness, and that kind of technique of running in that bent over position. And so, yeah, I was doing athletics. I was in the gym at the time and started chatting to some people. They were bobsleigh, they were skeleton, and they were about to go and have a training session. And I just asked, can I come along? Can I come and see? Can I have a go? And I did. Just had a go at the skeleton. And that summer, they were about to do a World Push Championships in Holland, in Groningen. So the summer of 2002. And again, I asked if I could go and compete as a guest. And I won my guest category. And so just then, we just got on a performance director in the sport. And he said, look, have a go on the real thing. Have a go on the ice. There's a military ice camp in Lillehammer in Norway 
October 2002 at this point. Go and have a go, see what you think. And so I did. And yeah, sort of slowly got myself into the sport that way. So how terrifying was it the first time you kind of, you know, chucked yourself down this track? Yeah, I mean, the second time I think is more terrifying than the first time. First time, you know, you're clueless. You don't really know what's going on. You start from halfway, you lie on the sled and someone just trickles you off. I would describe it as being like whizzed around in a washing machine. It is so fast. You get bumped around, you hurt yourself, you get bruised. I mean, my first time, few times, I, I think, I, I, well, I remember crying at the end. I, I hated it. I hurt. I was bruised. But then there's just this little thing of addiction of, you know, and that slowly competitiveness in you gets more and more. Um, but it's definitely not the most natural sport to pick up. <laughs> I suppose it must be, you know, you must get a bit of a, a bit of an adrenaline buzz doing it because it does look pretty terrifying. Oh, yeah. You know, the more you go down, yeah, it's for sure a massive part of it. And you've got the two sides of, a, of an athlete's life, the summer side when they're in the gym and you're, you're training your body to be mm-hmm. physically strong and fast, which I loved. You know, I absolutely loved being in the gym, lifting weights, getting strong and powerful. And then you've got the sliding side where for six months of the year, you travel around the world, living out of your suitcase, different place every week, competing and sliding. So very sort of two sides of your life. And yeah, like anything, you want to learn the tracks more. You want to perfect your skills. You want to not hit out of a corner and you want to get that skill level higher so that you get those literally hundreds of a second faster so that you move up another place and you get a better position in a race. So you were the first Team GB athlete to win an individual title at the Winter Olympics in 30 years. When you won the gold medal in 2010, that was a huge deal. There's been a bit more success since then. Obviously, Lizzie Yarnold is the most obvious name. And obviously, the curling teams have done quite well. We've got some more promising snowboarders coming along. But it is always a smattering of medals compared to the summer games where we sort of really excel. Do you think we're making progress? Do you think interest is sort of growing? Yeah, yeah, I think definitely. I mean, the biggest thing is that the winter sports are just nowhere near funded in the same way as summer. So everyone knows that money means Mm. medal. You know, if you've got money in the sport and that huge amount of funding and support and sponsors, you know, everything like that, then the athletes can get better equipment. They can stay in better places. They can spend more time away. Every detail can be increased to the next level. You know, back back in my era, we didn't have nutritionists. We didn't have psychologists. I mean, we've got a psychologist just before the Olympic Games. You know, you, you didn't have the same level of sports science. You know, all of it, you know, year on year gets better and better. For example, Skeleton have brought home the medals that means that the funding has stayed or remained the same or increased slightly. So that's the hardest thing. It costs an awful lot of money, as you can imagine, for an athlete to be away for five, six, seven months at a time. Slowly, we're bringing home medals still. We we do bring home medals and we have done. And I think that's really exciting. I think people don't see the huge amount of dedication, in particular, that winter sports athletes have to put into it you know living away from home for months on end it's tough really tough and we don't have potentially our own 
obviously ski hills. <laughs> we don't have a half pike we can practice on. We don't have a skeleton bobsleigh track we can practice on. And so you're always kind of fighting against the rest of the world to try and get the same amount of training time, sliding time, skiing time. So yeah, you're kind of always up against those challenges. But yeah, I think as we bring home those medals and as it's on TV more and more and the newspapers get it out there each winter that we are bringing home medals weekly, you know, it's just a knock-on effect, I think, of everything. You and Lizzie Arnold, as I said, you're the two names that people will think of when they think about sort of British success at the Winter Olympics. Is it just the funding? Why do we excel at chucking ourselves down a track? I, I think we we learn fast. We've learned to learn fast. We think outside the box. So yes, the obvious thing, the biggest barrier is we don't have an ice track. Okay, so how else can we get ourselves the best athletes in the world? When we talent ID athletes, we already choose really fast, powerful athletes. So can we then teach them onto the push track? We already make sure physically we have some of the best athletes to, to teach them. Yeah, we try and have the most amount of ice time that we can physically get. We try and have the very best equipment that since my sled back in Vancouver was just a prototype sled that we started building our own sleds in Great Britain. And with the help of McLaren Technologies over the year and new advances, we've been able to get better and better sleds and equipment and arguably now have some of the best sleds in the world. So that's definitely improved. And I think, you know, you have to be resilient as an athlete. You have to be so driven, so determined, you know, all those D's of like drive and determination and discipline. And, and I think finding those 1% of performance, can I prepare my body, my mind, my equipment, um, learn the tracks as best as you possibly can, um, and sort of tick all those boxes off. You know, and we try and always get the best uh, coaches, the best ice coaches, the best coaches back in the gym, you know, and the combination of all of that. And I think, you know, success breeds success. And we have brought home medals in the sport of skeleton since 2002. And if you know your teammate next to you as, as an Olympic medalist or, you know, Lizzie Arnold quite famously said, you know, that my medal in Vancouver when she was still on the team, you know, that told her that nothing was impossible. Amy did it. I can do it. And so people come in and I do a lot of mentoring with the younger athletes and meet first timers and chatted to some people only a few weeks ago saying, if you get picked on this skeleton talent program, you can win a medal. We've proven we know how to bring home medals. And I think that's a really exciting thing to be part of. Every sport learns from each other and really tries to bounce off each other in that kind of high performance and, and in that success. So, Amy, you're joining the Eurosport team this year as part of the Winter Olympics presenting team. What are you looking forward to watching? Is there anything in particular that, that you can't wait to see, obviously, apart from the skeleton? What are our chances this year? Are there any athletes that you've got your eye on that you think we should be watching out for? Ooh, cracky, cracky. Yeah, I mean, I'm excited about all of it. As, as an Olympian, I love any Olympics and I glue myself to the TV as much as possible. So yes, to be part of the Eurosport team, I'm really honoured to be part of a, of a huge team in Great Britain and obviously in the wider Europe. And so that's really excited to be alongside some, some great presenters. You know, it's going to be amazing interactive space and set up. So I think the viewers are going to have some incredible footage shown to them. 
you know, the technology that is involved is going to be really amazing. Oh, I mean, alpine skiing is going to be exciting with Dave Ryden that's just gone and brought home a World Cup medal. He's going to be flying on that confidence and four-time Olympian. I think in snowboard slope style, big air, you've got a lot of, of athletes coming in. And I think James Woods, Woodsy, he will be really striving to get a medal. You know, he got fourth place in Pyeongchang, so he's desperate to, to come on through. I mean, I personally love watching long tracks, short track speed skating. I think short track is some of the craziest, most exciting sports to watch. But then if I flip back to the ice sports, you know, bobsleigh, I think Brad Hall, our bobsleigh driver, I think they have got a really exciting chance also to bring home a medal. I'm really looking forward to that and obviously the sliding sports. So what advice would you give to someone who is watching the Winter Olympics this year and is inspired to go and take up a winter sport? Oh, I would say, yeah, I mean, if you're inspired to take up any winter sport, look at the skill set that you've got and what sport you potentially do. And then search out talent ID schemes. There's so much now with UK sport picking athletes you need to see you know are you a power speed athlete what is it that you could shift into and then give it a go you can definitely transition across into winter sport so yeah research what's out there how you can shift across talk to people get in contact with anyone i think with social media these days you can drop anyone a kind of message and get responses and speak to other athletes and see if they can help you everyone is willing to help any athlete who's keen to get into any sport so yeah I encourage you just to give anything a go you never know what might happen and what sport might suit you and does that include you Amy where can we find you on social media (laughs) yeah you know I'm on Instagram Amy Williams or Amy Joy Williams my middle name yeah I'm across all of those kind of boards yeah so I'm out there and I, I try and encourage I try and put any kind of stuff out there whether it's fitness or what I'm up to yeah I mean I've just written a book and that's just specifically for athletes who've just watched the last Tokyo Olympics, these Beijing Olympics. You know, it's for the teenage athlete to really help them increase their performance and how to get to that next level. So that's been something that I've worked on over lockdown, actually, and I've got it out there now. And, you know, it's my passion is to really help the younger athletes, to mentor athletes, bring that next level of performance to them. And I think, actually, you know, all the footage on Eurosport that's going to be shown for these Olympics, there's going to be hundreds and hundreds of hours of footage for young athletes to watch and get inspired by, having all the experts across all the different sports really explain in detail the sports. And so I think that's really exciting for for anyone, young or old, to be able to really tune in and and fall in love with another sport that they might not have thought of. Absolutely. And I think we can all appreciate the universal joy of an Olympic medal. And certainly I found over the Tokyo Olympics, it's very nice to wake up in the morning to relentlessly good news. So I look forward to it. So you can watch the Winter Olympics on Discovery Plus and Eurosport from as this goes out today, Wednesday, starting with the curling and who doesn't love a bit of curling? Amy, thank you so much for joining me and I look forward to seeing you presenting on the Eurosport team over the course of the Olympics. Thanks a lot. Welcome to Rated or Dated. Jen, what film did we watch this week that encouraged us to party on? 
Well, Mick, this week we revisited 1992's Rockfest, Wayne's World. It was the eighth biggest film of that year. I'm sure you both know already, but I did not because I was nine when this film came out and I haven't returned to it for many, many years. Before it was a film, it was a sketch on Saturday Night Live. Mm -hmm. Starring Canadian comic and actor Mike Myers as Wayne and Dana Carvey as his pal, Garth. The film was co-written by Myers along with Bonnie and Terry Turner, whose other credits include Third Rock from the Sun and That 70s Show. And I think we probably can all see some of the similarities there. Mm -hmm. The film was directed by a woman, which was also a bit of a surprise to me, Penelope Spiris. The film follows the duo, Wayne and Garth, who host a public access show, Wayne's World, from the eponymous character's parents' basement, which has a sort of cult following amongst the youth of Illinois, which is where they live, Aurora, Illinois, to be precise. Wayne and Garth are, I think I saw them described as metalheads, but I'm not sure if that's an apt... Yeah, they're slacker stoner metalheads, yeah, for sure. Yeah, but it's kind of like, it's not what I would call metal as such, but anyway. Oh, Jen likes the Nordic death stuff, do you? that's the, you know, (laughs) I sort of think like Alice Cooper, it's not really like metal metal, is it? Anyway, they predominantly enjoy hanging out at live music events with their pals, dodging Wayne's mad ex-girlfriend Stacey and generally living I'd say a pretty carefree existence. Wayne has designs on Total Babe and rocking chick Cassandra, played by Tia Carrera. And generally life is pretty sweet, although Wayne would rather like to buy the 1964 Fender Stratocaster he's been mooning over. Turns out he gets his wish after their basement budget show is picked up by Total Creep TV exec Benjamin, played by Rob Lowe, who wants to use the show as a sponsorship vehicle for Noah's Arcades and general corporate ne'er-do-welling and he'd also quite like to boff Cassandra because well he's only human none of this goes down well with our heroes as they discover Benjamin's dastardly plan but is it too late will they get their show back will Wayne get the girl and will Garth ever not hurl when he sees an attractive woman well there's a trio of endings to choose from so I guess take your pick. As you already know from my opening line, the film did very well, debuting at number one in the US box office and the highest grossing film of all the films based on Saturday Night Live sketches, but I have actually only ever heard of four of those films, and one of them is Wayne's World 2, and obviously (laughs) one of them is Wayne's World. So, Mick, Hannah, can E-Review name one of these 11 films that isn't Wayne's World 1 or 2, The Blues Brothers or Coneheads? My answer is no. <laughs> well, no, in that case, no. Okay, well, I don't know. It's Pat, The Ladies' Man, MacGruber, Superstar, A Night at the Roxbury. Oh, A Night at the Roxbury. I do know that one. And Stuart Saves His Family. Nope. There you go. Night at the Roxbury anyway. is excellent and uh, involves Jim Carrey and Hadaway. There you go. Had a way. Amazing. So, to be fair to Wayne's World, it's not really the kind of film that serious film critics go nuts over, and indeed the response was pretty middling. A lot of the critics at the time thought it was a bit better than they expected it to be, and indeed a bit deeper than they expected it to be. And you can find a few nuggets of this, and for me, those are the funniest bits, such as when cameo star Alice Cooper regales his visitors with fun (laughs) facts about the city of Milwaukee, and a dig at product placement by our heroes. That's quite funny as well. Yeah, that is good. Fun facts about the famous Bohemian Rhapsody scene where they're all in the car and they're singing along to the famous tune by Queen. 
is that Brian May credits the film with the resurgence of the popularity of Queen in the US and also says that Freddie Mercury was actually able to watch the scene shortly before his death in 1991 and apparently he laughed and laughed and said to May, how wonderful is that? That's nice, isn't it? That is nice. So I saw this at the cinema when it was released and I was nine at the time and I fucking loved it and I've definitely seen it since then but not for a good long while. I know already that you've both seen it. Hands up, who else massively conflated their memories of Wayne's World 1 with Wayne's World 2 prior to watching this? I don't remember very much about Wayne's World 2, whereas I remembered a lot about Wayne's World. But when I was chatting to my pals about having watched Wayne's World, a lot of their remembrances was Wayne's World 2, so you're not on your own. I haven't seen Wayne's World 2, I don't think. I was fully expecting to watch Wayne's World 2. And in fact, I watched Wayne's World <laughs> 1. So it was a bit of a Shrek situation for me. Puss in Boots is great in Wayne's World too. So, no. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. So do you agree with the critics that this film is in any way deep? I don't think it's very deep at all, is it? And, you know, now with my no. feminist head on, I'm like, oh, jealous boyfriend seeks plot that could destroy girlfriend's career because he's insecure. Doesn't sit brilliantly with me. Uh, yeah. Does that mean I didn't have a lovely time? Not at all. Yeah, I would also add the other thing that there might be an argument that there's some depth to is the idea that, you know, you, you own your own music and you don't sell out to the big man yeah. and all of that stuff. And people are taken advantage of by you know, people in power. But a couple of years later, Saturday Night Live cast members were made to sign one of the most restrictive contracts that was not in their favour at all. And I find that kind of ironic that it would be trying to tell that message while this... Let's sign a contract that basically says if they have a sketch that do well, they have to make the film. And that's kind of just within Uh, their, you know, their ordinary job that they can be moved to a sitcom pilot and then have to stay in that for up to six years because it's part of their contract. So, yeah, I found that a bit... I mean, I don't know what their contract looked like in 1992, but that was like late 90s they were made to sign that. So I find that's a bit hollow mm. as well. So, yeah, I don't I don't know that I could see any depth in it at all. Well, Mick, you've mentioned watching it from a feminist perspective, so there are a few things to talk about there. <laughs> Just a couple. <laughs> yeah, I was reading an interview that Tia Carrera gave uh, to Vice a couple of years ago and she said that the casting call she responded to was a girl from Hong Kong who speaks with a heavy Hong Kong accent but when she sings she rocks like Pat Benatar. (laughs) She's not from Hong Kong, she's from Hawaii and she's mostly Filipino, I believe. And she said she's actually never played anyone from the Philippines but has played basically every other sort of Asian part that Mm. that she could anyway Tia Carrera who was in fact a trained singer and really did sing those songs so that's that's you know yeah I think they released Ballroom Blitz as a single as well it did pretty well I don't remember that but it's it's cracking she turned down a role in Baywatch as Hasselhoff's marine biologist girlfriend to audition for Wayne's World (laughs) and that seems like a pretty good place to start with the female characters in this so the two the two female characters in this the two who are either basically you can be a cool girl or you can be fucking nuts yeah i mean the fact that she turned down a part in baywatch kind of says quite a lot to me as well hannah what did you think yeah i mean we're talking about his current girlfriend and his ex-girlfriend yeah yes 
Yeah, I mean, his ex-girlfriend is a trope. <laughs> and Stacey, the psycho hose beast. I don't know what you mean. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, I find it really uncomfortable when he laughs when she actually injures herself on a bicycle. Yeah, twice. <laughs> and, you know, manic pixie dream goddess style rock star mm-hmm. that ends up kind of having a boyfriend and also a manager, you know, in the same role, whether she wants him to be or not. Yeah, I haven't really got much to say about that. I have to confess, I'm not the biggest fan of Wayne's World. I wasn't the biggest fan of Wayne's World when it came out the first time. How old were you and did you I see it at the cinema? I was 18, I think, mm. probably. Yeah, I was nine, so... No, I saw it on VHS. And I saw it many times on VHS because loads of people around me really liked it. In fact, one of the things I was quite impressed by watching it back is it's not them that overuses their catchphrases, it's everybody else. Most of the stuff they only say once or twice, the stuff that just sort (laughs) Mm. of goes on and on and that you heard repeatedly and you were just sick to death of people saying schwing and things like that. It actually isn't so much repeated in this. It's, It's other people that have done it. But outside of a level of nostalgia for remembering the time that I watched it, I can't say I enjoyed watching it again at all as an experience i would i would give it one star and at least or maybe two stars but at least one full star for the delivery of the line it's like when we climbed the rope at gym i mean that is just incredible his delivery dana carvey (laughs) of that but yeah other bits really leave me cold i thought it might be really interesting actually because i mean obviously we've talked about other films from this kind of year but the age difference between us isn't massive but it really comes into play Mm. about this kind of time particularly with something so kind of catchphrase heavy which as a nine-year-old jen i can absolutely see why you'd be like yeah i really love that and it stays with you as a 13 year old which i was ditto it was a kind of shorthand for being a bit cool you've seen something a bit cool but as someone a little bit older i can see why it doesn't appeal quite as much i i have to say watching it again for me as i alluded to earlier it was it was like shrek and shrek 2 all of the funny bits that i remembered are in the second one and then i felt quite let down that none of it happened and i did find that the women in it are so like tia carrera's character cassandra is so horribly objectified Mm, (laughs) i was so like shocked to see how much so because you know it's a young man's film right it's it's two guys who still like he still lives in his mum's house and they're in their mid-20s amazon prime describes them as teenagers right and I don't I think, mean... I was like, I think you've messed that up because I think the joke is he's older and he's, yeah. he's a bit lame because he still lives he's in his He's a waster, isn't he, basically? Yeah, he's, a, he's an absolute slacker. Yeah. And I think it's supposed to be funny that he still lives in his mum's basement. But yeah, it was a real n- nostalgia fest. And what I did like about it was that all of the language, it didn't feel like I was being introduced to it because it is yeah. so much in our kind of, our language now. Yeah, yeah. But every single catchphrase played like a set piece. It just feels like... A series of sketches strung together with a plot so thin yeah. it could have been one of the women in the fucking film it's just mm. there's nothing there right there's nothing but catchphrases i didn't hate it but i, I mostly found it boring it was a warm i mean feeling. rob lowe's trousers are quite funny whose trousers rob lowe's trousers are quite <laughs> yes. funny. i don't know yeah. I, I don't think they were meant to be. I think that's like a subsequent joke. I think he was supposed to just dress how people dressed. Yeah, his trousers are almost MC Hammerish in places. When they take off, when they do the Scooby Doo ending and they take mm, off his mm, mask mm. and he's like the old, the old guy, old man with us. 
Yeah, and then they like, and you see him at the end, and he's wearing what he's wearing. He doesn't look at all out of place as a really old guy <laughs> dressed in what Rob Lowe is just wearing, like the slacks mm. and the funny coat and whatever. Actually, I think Rob Lowe is very good as Benjamin. I, I think say. he's really good, and it was his first comic role, and I think he's he's got it. I mean, he's not even that nefarious, is he? I mean, what does he do? Is he trying to woo her? Maybe, but he actually goes and gets a music video made that might actually propel her to stardom, and Wayne just goes, I'm not having that, and goes and drags her off the set. It's just so outrageous. I've got this mad plan about a guy who might be watching TV as he drives past our house. All right, let's do that. Yeah, I mean, she yeah. doesn't have to go along with it, to be fair. Oh, I mean, she does because she has absolutely no agency in this film, Jen. Well, yes, sorry, there is that. It was telling when I I did chat with my mates on Saturday night, having watched Wayne's World, and Gary watched it with me, and... Uh, it was a group of six of us, three three men, three women, and the guys were like, oh my God, and the women sort of just did a, oh, right, okay. It was very telling, I think, that maybe it's stuck in young men's heads more than uh, a young woman's heads. Yeah, quite yeah. possibly. I spent a huge amount of time trying to work out where I'd seen Terry since, and in the end I gave in and I, I MDB'd him. He's the director, their friend, with the long hair, the one who keeps telling the yeah. guy that he loves him. And when I eventually Googled him, he's been in literally everything I've ever watched, I think. <laughs> it's quite weird. He was in The Americans. He was in Justified. I think he was in Boardwalk Empire. He's, like, literally been everywhere. But I, I spent ages going, where do I know him from? So when you've got the time to do that, yeah, you're not especially enjoying it, I don't think. The things that I remembered as big scenes as well, so, like, when Garth does, Foxy, does his Jimi Hendrix yeah. thing, are, like, four seconds. <laughs> and I was mm. like, oh, in my head, this was... He, he basically does the whole song and and actually garth he is he's kind of adorable that's his whole point but he's really two-dimensional as well isn't he he's not got much going on just no wayne's pretty two-dimensional isn't he i think he's got a bit more about him yeah i mean he's got a bit more about him than garth but he's not a rounded character is he but then i suppose that's not the point of the film so like i don't know I like the bit where they're lying on the car uh, and discussing whether they fancied Bugs Bunny when he put a dress on. That bit made me laugh because it's quite sweet. <laughs> I do agree with him that marriage is punishment for shoplifting in some country. <laughs> that is also a good line. And I also enjoyed the ice cream line about what yes. if he was an ice cream flavour, he'd be pralines and dick. And it's just, it's more the delivery, but it made me absolutely yeah. howl. Do you know what? Actually, you just reminded me of something that I I found like, it made me feel a little bit outraged is that when he does the cards which at the time i remember thinking was really funny when he's got you know the man this man has no penis yeah i can't mm. even remember his name but he's the guy who owns noah's arcades it's called noah is he what's yeah. his actual what's his surname because oh. they introduce him as mr whatever i think yeah. anyway he's got the cards and they all say like disparaging things about mr noah on them like this man has no penis and he's a sphincter and whatever and I was just like, he hasn't done anything to you. He's just here. He's given you the money to buy your fucking guitar. Mm-hmm. Also, yeah. the guitar and Cassandra, he goes, it will be mine. Oh, mm. yeah, it will be mine. And then he meets her and goes, she will be mine. Oh, yeah, she will be mine. Because there's no difference between owning a guitar and owning a woman. Horribly objectified. <laughs> Can I ask you about Mike Myers' other films? Are you a fan of any of those? Yeah, I was going to mention this, actually. I, again, so I think I was 14 when Austin Powers came out, or when I watched it. It might have come out before that. I think I watched yeah, it on baby. VHS. And I loved that as well. And I think if I watched it now, I probably wouldn't love it. 
Uh, pretty much what Jen said, except add a few more years onto my age. Yeah, there are bits in Austin Powers that are funny. Like, will always be funny. Him trying to do a three-point turn in that that little car. That, is like, just it's brilliant. amazing. That is one of the best things, and it happens more in real life than you realise. Yeah. So there are bits in it. I did. I did have a, a, a penchant for so I married an axe murderer. But I don't know how that would stand up if I watched it now. If if when everyone was like, oh, we should watch a Mike Myers film, that would have been the one I picked rather mm-hmm. than Wayne's World. Um, but, but I, I think Austin Powers shows that kind of... The gross-out character for me, that again, men I have met and chatted to about Austin Powers, about Mike Myers, love, that I absolutely find repulsive, is Fat Bastard. Yes, yeah. And just mm. thinking about that character, I'm like, oh. And the fact that he invented that character makes me quite angry at him. Yeah, no, it's not nice, is it? But I think, again, I wouldn't have been thinking about this when I was 14. The female characters in all of the Austin Powers films, it's it's much the same situation, isn't it? Like, they are all horribly objectified. None of them have... Although, that is kind of the joke, because it is a joke about James Bond. Yes. In in Austin Powers' defence. Of course, yeah. But at the same time... Probably an an easy joke for Mike Myers' film to make, though, Hannah. Yeah. 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 What I saw in Wayne's World that made me a little bit more fond of it was a fairly direct line into stuff like Anchorman and stuff that Will Ferrell's done. And obviously there's the SNL relationship there as well. But that kind of bringing you into a world where it is a lot of catchphrases and getting that to be your world. I could see the little relationship, the the path that led from one to the other. And I think like a lot of the catchphrases and whatever, it did become like very much part of the lexicon of the day. And, you know, totally. But it's interesting, isn't it? Because when we recorded last week and at the end of the Rated or Dated last week, you said we're going to do Wayne's World. And Mm. I went, oh, party on. And Hannah Mm. went, excellent. And I when we finished recording, thought a bit later, oh shit, I quoted Bill and Ted, not Wayne's World. And then actually, it wasn't. I had quoted Wayne's World. I was correct. But yeah. Bill and Ted came first. And actually, yeah. there's loads of the lexicon that they've nicked from there. Oh, yeah. I also don't like Bill and Ted. I liked the second Bill and Ted. I thought the first one was shit. So, I don't know. Maybe it's, it's maybe sequels were better in <laughs> 1992. Jen, I refuse to be drawn into another conversation about Sister Act 2. Move on. <laughs> Look, don't get me started on Short Circuit 2. Anyway, with all of that in mind, I'm going to ask the question. Rated or dated? Dated. Mick? It's incredibly dated, but I didn't have an awful time watching it. Yeah, I'd agree with that. It's it's really, really dated, but I didn't hate it. Who's next? Who's next? It's me. And as Jen laid out to us last week, it is pretty slim pickings in February in any particular year we can visit at the moment. But we are going to be watching 1997's mob flick, Donnie Brasco. Mm. There you go. Good noises. Standard issue for all women. <laughs> 